Right now, on Matter of Fact, he was arrested and tortured for criticizing his government. Why do you continue to do what you do when the cost is so, so high? How this photojournalist uses his camera as a witness and a weapon for justice. And... I don't know what to do. I'm helpless. Can refugees in America feed the growing need for help across the globe? I think our community is going to be facing a different kind of genocide. Plus, he has the need for speed. But can NASCAR keep pace? Is there really a place for African Americans to succeed, to be stars in the sport? Of course, I believe there definitely is. And find out why the government is canceling your student loan. Soledad O'Brien, welcome to Matter of Fact. Long before COVID-19 swept the globe, immigrants and refugees living in the U.S. were a major lifeline for their families and the economies they left behind in underdeveloped, war-torn countries where poverty and starvation are commonplace. As a group, refugees send about $500 billion back home, and the pandemic still threatens that pipeline. Our correspondent, Jessica Gomez, traveled to Lincoln, Nebraska, which has a large population of resettled refugees, many who are struggling to help their families here and on the other side of the globe. Business was really great until COVID-19. Insurance adjuster Safe Balool. These days, taking work when he can get it. People start to work from home, so they're not traveling a lot. But Balool is not complaining. The refugee who fled civil war in eastern Sudan at 19 has seen much tougher times. For me, I have to go to the well two miles to get water every day. You know, I was little, no running water, no electricity. Didn't have my own shoes until I was nine years old. Balul, who later joined the U.S. Army and was deployed to Iraq, says the ability to help his family back home has inspired him since the day he left. So I have to succeed no matter what for them, then for me. Far from eastern Sudan and surrounded by farm fields, Lincoln is home to the University of Nebraska. And more than 30,000 refugees welcomed from all over the world. While contributing to the local economy, Lincoln's refugees, like others around the U.S., are also a vital source of support to their home countries. Corrections officer Justin Murray sending home as much money as he can every month. If I have the capability of eating three meals a day and somebody there couldn't even find something for a day, why would I not share one meal with him and eat two meals? But Murray is lucky. His job is essential. With COVID-19 shuttering businesses for months now, for many refugees, the money is not there to send home. I can go from country to country to country to showcase how this situation we have right now is truly on the brink of catastrophe for countries who depend on outside support. Humanitarian organizations like the United Nations World Food Program sounding the alarm. COVID-19 is not only slowing down the critical flow of money into developing nations, the virus causing a breakdown in the food supply chain. With restricted trade, transportation and closed borders, help is not getting where it needs to go fast enough. 
it's critical that we get the economies going again in a safe way because the downstream impact literally means millions of people very well may die. Julie Karoff, a substitute teacher, also works to help the persecuted Yazidi people. Many in refugee camps in Iraq. But donations have slowed down, and without work, Karaf herself doesn't have the money to help her own family back home. I think our community is going to be facing a different kind of genocide because now they are solely depending on us. The Western Union, so it opened here. Oh, good. The Asian Community and Cultural Center helping Lincoln's refugees who are feeling the pressure. It is a stress to um, work hard enough in order to live your life, but also to have a little extra to send. That sense of responsibility is for me, I cannot fail. Safe Balul's income now down about 50%, but he's less worried about his wife and son here and more about his family in Sudan. They struggle. Yeah, they don't have a lot, so I don't want them to struggle. But more bad news. The money he's sent for weeks now is stuck eight hours away from his family. Food is running out. I don't know what to do. I'm helpless. Helpless and thousands of miles away. In Lincoln, Nebraska, for Matter of Fact, I'm Jessica Gomez. The UN World Food Program is taking on the biggest humanitarian response in its history, offering some assistance to 138 million people. Still ahead, driving for change. Can the kid they call the youngster steer a new generation of fans to NASCAR? But first, how far one journalist is willing to go in defense of freedom. can be a powerful tool in protest and resistance. Music, writing, painting, photographs, all a channel for truth and free speech. But that freedom is under attack. Right now in Myanmar, journalists have been arrested daily for reporting on a deadly coup as the nation's military kills, assaults, and terrorizes civilians every day. In neighboring Bangladesh, anyone who uses words or images to criticize the government can be arrested and held without a warrant under the country's Digital Security Act. One well-known writer recently died in custody, and his case prompted violent clashes. But it's not stopping others from taking up the fight for freedom, like photographer and social activist Shahidul Alam, who has been imprisoned before for criticizing the Bangladeshi government. Last time we spoke to him, which was back in 2019, he was facing arrest if he returned to Bangladesh, but still he went home. And I recently talked to him about his fight for the freedom of the press. Why do you continue to do what you do and others when the cost is potentially so, so high? Art touches us in ways other things cannot. I mean, it gets under our skin. We've actually discovered that some of the shows we've done have had a greater effect against a hugely repressive regime than many of the more direct actions that have taken place. I find art to be powerful. I find art to be something that seeps in and something that haunts us. And that's what I want to do. I want to remind people 
of the insidious nature of these repressive regimes. The writer Mustaq Ahmed, he was arrested under the Digital Security Act and, and he died not too long ago in custody. Uh, talk to me a little bit about who he was and also how the country has used this law in order to, to punish any criticism coming from people. Mushtaq was a writer and an entrepreneur. This is a writer who expressed an opinion, a valid point of view, who has been imprisoned and been in jail for about nine months, and eventually he died in jail. This is what's happening to this nation of mine, where convicted murderers get bail, yet writers who express dissent, people who love the country and want to engage in constructive criticism, are the ones who put in jail and sometimes die in jail. And it's bizarre that a nation that has fought so hard for its own independence now turns it forces against its own people. So let's talk about your uh, exhibit, which includes portraits and landscapes. It's called Truth to Power. I would expect with that title, I would have seen, I don't know, so many pictures that look like powerful people challenging things, but in so many ways, they're serene, they're quiet little moments that you capture. Talk to me a little bit about that, that title and what you're hoping to do in this exhibit. The pictures are, as you say, quiet, but they are also sinister. Uh, there is, for instance, an image of a paddy field. Uh, that paddy field is where this man was meant to have been killed in a crossfire, which in Bangladesh is a euphemism for extrajudicial killings. But then you look at it and you realize that it's pristine. And had there been a skirmish in a paddy field, the paddy field would have been. Then you discover that... Um, the body had multiple bullet holes, but the shirt he was wearing had much less. And slowly the story begins to unravel. There is another aspect of the work, which is about uh, an indigenous woman called Puna Chakma, who was disappeared by the military on the 12th of June, 1996. And the way I produced these images were using the straw mats that they used to sleep upon. In the last altercation she had with her abductor, it was about the fact that the military had burned their villages. So I used fire using a laser device to burn the straw images to char those her image onto that canvas. And I used that in two ways. One, to remind people that these are very simple people with very little material things that the state fears so much that they have to disappear them. But I also wanted to engage with uh, the actual act of the disappearance. The exhibit is at the Asia Society in Houston. It's so nice to have an opportunity to catch up with you uh, since our last discussion, and, uh, and I appreciate you talking to me. Thank you for having me. Next, he's in the driver's seat now. But can he speed up change in NASCAR? Wallace ignited a culture shift in NASCAR when he pushed the sport to rethink its ties to the Confederate flag. It banned the flag amid nationwide protests against racial discrimination and police brutality. While Wallace won the support of many fellow drivers, not all of the sports fans went along. And recently, when Bill Lester made his return to the sport, he was apparently booed. It's something Lester said happened often as one of the few black drivers in the sport. Raising this question, 
Can NASCAR keep up with social change? Our special correspondent, Joey Chen, has our report. On the speedway, someone tagged him the youngster. And though he's now in his eighth season with plenty of podium finishes, the nickname stuck. I'm Blake Lothian. I'm a NASCAR driver, diversity driver with Rev Racing. I drive the number 16 car for AK Performance. Lothian is helping to set the pace in NASCAR's Drive for Diversity campaign, a decade-long effort that so far produced only the second top-tier racer in NASCAR's 72-year history, Bubba Wallace. In a sport that just this summer banned displays of the Confederate flag, with a fan base that's nearly 80% white, drivers like Lothian could be key to steering new fans to NASCAR. Is there really a place for African-Americans to succeed, to be stars in the sport? Of course, I believe there definitely is. I mean, the statistics don't look amazing, but I say there definitely is always an opportunity. The road to NASCAR's premier cup series is a long one. Like many of his peers, Lothian started out with go-karts. By 10, he'd reached the first rungs of junior racing. Now barely 18, he's driving toward a future as a pro. This is your baby. Oh yeah. This season, Lothian's driving a legend's car at the high end of the semi-pro ranks. He's uh, brought me to one top three so far, uh, two top fives. Though the AK garage starts drivers as young as eight. A former racer himself, Kendall Sellers warns young drivers that the odds are nearly always against them. When you're racing, you're one person against 25. So your, your percentages are, are way down. So it's the most unrewarding sport out there to this date, in my opinion. The challenges don't end there. Car racing is, obviously, dangerous. 70 miles an hour, he came in your Right here. The graveyard sits in tall weeds behind the garage, covering the remains of the car Lothian was driving at the Anderson Motor Speedway last year. I honestly thought I died when I got hit. It was so scary just being stuck there. Like there was nothing I could do. I just had my arms up like this, just preparing for the hit because I saw the guy coming right at me. Then after I got hit, I opened my eyes and I just saw fire from the other guy that hit me. His car was just completely engulfed in flames. Families must steal their nerves and open their wallets for an expensive journey. A training go-kart at Lothian's level can run several thousand dollars. Even with a sponsored car, young drivers can run up gear, travel, and repair tabs into six figures. But the biggest barrier to launching a young driver may be getting in their heads. First of all, you have to convince the drivers that they're athletes. Coach Phil Horton trains the rev racing drivers and young pit crews to muscle up to the intensity of motorsport. What you're doing for three and a half hours, you know, in a 130 degree car and you're in traffic, you know, going 200 miles an hour, you know, your hand-eye coordination has to be superb. Your stamina, your ability to deal with the heat and all of those things come under the athletic ram of being an athlete. Horton says NASCAR's recent efforts to build inclusion have helped, but the stories of the first African-American racers, drivers like Charlie Wiggins, who defied discrimination on the track and off, should really inspire young drivers to push the limits. We try to ingrain in them that motorsports is in their blood and that they're not breaking into something that is not a part of them. Still for Lothian, and for NASCAR, making inroads with new fans will likely mean facing some hard bumps in the future. 
but both are focused on the road ahead. For Matter of Fact, I'm Joey Chen in Charlotte, North Carolina. Next, why this recycling idea won't fall flat. Plus, degrees of debt. Why some borrowers will get a clean slate on student loans. To stay up to date with our top stories, sign up for our newsletter. You can subscribe at matteroffact.tv. Now to a weekly feature we like to call We're Paying Attention Even If You're Too Busy. The Department of Education plans to cancel $1 billion in student loan debt. Might sound like a lot, but Americans owe more than $1.7 trillion in student loans. So who does this actually help? People defrauded by for-profit schools who took out federal loans. In 2016, the Obama administration announced a program to forgive those loans. The rule was supposed to take effect July 2017, but by then, President Donald Trump was in office and his education secretary, Betsy DeVos, repeatedly pushed back the repayments and rejected about 99% of applications for loan forgiveness. Well, now the new Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, announced the cancellation of $1 billion in loans, which helps an estimated 72,000 borrowers. Students will also be reimbursed for any payments made on the loans, become eligible for federal student loans again, and have negative ratings removed from their credit. The department will also reevaluate claims that were denied. Next. From a seat to your feet, this shop's rolling out a new beginning for old tires to help save the environment. Finally, treading into new territory with tires, we head to Gagali, Rwanda, where a workshop stops old tires from polluting the environment by transforming them into useful household items. The owner says that he got the idea when people would visit and use the tires as seats. So he turned them into chairs and then shoes. The workshop makes about 15 lounge sets a week. They sell between 150 to 200 US dollars. The shoes cost between one and six dollars. Recycling them into reusable items helps prevent the tires from piling up in garages, clogging rivers or drainage systems, or ending up in a landfill, as well as being burned and releasing harmful pollutants. Plus, it provides work for locals. The workshop now employs 12 people. Sounds like a tireless effort to help save the environment. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and I'll see you back here next week. If you missed our top stories about how a refugee community in America is fighting the global hunger crisis, our interview with a photojournalist using his camera as a weapon for justice, or if you want to see how Blake Lothian is driving change in NASCAR, just go to matteroffact.tv. And listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and Pluto.